This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, and the sermon title is A Message of First Importance. We hope you are blessed by the message today. God, we need eyes to see this morning. We have so much that we've celebrated already, but we celebrate the Word of God, Lord, as the, the pinnacle, as the absolute authority given to instruct the hearts of men on how we would know God, how we can be saved from our sin, how we can turn with the power of God away from our rebellious lives, hating God to a life-loving Christ above all things and being new creations. I pray that we would be listening to the Spirit as you speak to us. I pray you'd give me words, and God, that I would step out of the way and that your spirit would speak through me as just a vessel. Give ears to everyone listening, young and old, everyone in between, because we are here and we need you. We need your word. We need you to shape us. We need you to transform us. And God, maybe there's many in this room, even some, even if just one, that need you to save them, redeem them, Turn them from their sin to trust in the living Christ, to be saved and forgiven and given eternal life. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Title of the message today on this incredible Resurrection Sunday morning, which has been amazing so far, the testimony of God's goodness and His grace is overwhelming. I hope that it struck you already. But the title of this message this morning is A Message of First Importance. And it's pulled right from our text there in 1 Corinthians 15. And I speak in agreement with with the Apostle Paul this morning that what I'm declaring to you is of first importance. I want you to consider that for a moment. This is of first importance, not by my definition, but by the definition of the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter to the Corinthian church. And now we see as scripture, and I'm I'm not making up this information, so I don't bring to you something that I've created, it's not original to me, but I'm handing it to you, having also received it through the written word. This is of first importance. If this is your first time in church in a very long time, if somebody invited you, I specifically and very, in a unique way, I want to ask you to pay attention to this. Everyone, of course, listen, pay attention, but this is of first importance. This text that we've read, particularly from verse 3 down to verse 7, is one of the earliest Christian creeds that we have. Here, it's, it's easy to take this for granted because here we are in the 21st century and we're reading from modern books with leather-bound Bibles and, and it's, it seems new and it's current. And we have to kind of have a little bit of a stretch of our thinking to remember that this is ancient. These words are ancient. And these words, particularly in Corinthians 15, are extremely old when it comes to the message of the gospel, particularly these creed words. Notice the words that Paul said, for I delivered to you what I also received. And then he goes through these four points. That is what a creed is. And some of you may not, well, creed, that sounds old and, and, and too traditional for me. That's okay. 
Creeds have been spoken for centuries from the Christian church to even say Jesus is Lord is a creed. It's something that you believe. It's something that's concrete. It's something that's passed down to you and then you pass on to others. And this is what's being told here. And he says, I deliver to you what I also received. This statement of confession, a truth that is passed down. Now here's something that's interesting. Most scholars date these particular words from verse 3 down to verse 7 and on date these words to between 32 and 35 A.D. Now, that is extremely close to the life of Jesus Christ, is it not? The, the, the Christ who lived and is historically proven that he was here, he lived, he definitely died by the Roman hands. And here we have this creed that most scholars believe goes right to his very life. The point being that Paul likely received this creed shortly after his own conversion being confronted with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Having received from the Holy Spirit and from those believers that were already there that this is what we stake our lives upon. Pass this down to other people. Let me just remind you, church, and those who are perhaps guests here, that your faith is rooted in concrete and substantial fact, not theory. This was not a scripture or words made up hundreds of years after the life of Jesus, as many of the other religions, books and writings come about hundreds of years after the life of Jesus, and the prophets and so-called prophets and diviners come on the scene, but This is substantial fact, not hundreds of years after the life of Jesus and then corroborated to invent the world's largest religion, Christianity. But these are confessions and beliefs held by people who lived with Christ and walked with Jesus, the real Christ. They witnessed his death. They saw him within days of the events themselves and went to their deaths for the sake of this truth that we're reading this morning. There's nothing more important than this. The Apostle Paul says it. I can stand there. This is of first importance. And here's the four things that he mentions. Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Number two, that Christ was buried. Thirdly, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then lastly, A paraphrase that he made a physical bodily appearance to hundreds of people at various times after his resurrection. Now that is awesome. Now that is awesome. And he includes that final piece of the appearing of Jesus in this extremely important creed that dates back so far and almost to the very life of Christ himself. So I'm going to tackle the first three of these points in brief and then we'll spend some time thinking about our risen Lord together. And we will cover the account from the Gospels of Christ's resurrection. But firstly, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is the Gospel. It is a fact that Christ died, and most people would agree with that, and even if, you, even if you're a skeptic here, you should still at least be able to look back and say, well, there was a man who was named Jesus, and he died. He did die. But he not just died. Paul says that he died for our sins. And if you're missing that component, that Christ died for our sins, then you're missing an extremely important piece of that truth. The word means in the place of. That Greek word, died for our sins, 
It means in our place, in the place of. He died for the sake of us, you and me. He died for our advantage. There was an advantage given to you and to me by that man, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. He died for our sins. His death accomplished a saving work. He died for our sins. He died for our sins and effectively did something about the fallen condition of our lives. He's the only one who can. There's no one else who has died for sins, only Jesus Christ. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We have all sinned. You know your heart. You know your own grave mistakes and missteps. But even more than that, you know deep down in the intuition of your heart that God has placed there that you have sinned against God. But Christ did something about it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a couple texts to help hold this doctrine up. Paul says in chapter 5.21 of 2 Corinthians, For our sake, there's that word, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, for your sake, he died for our sins. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us in our place. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Forgiven, made righteous, redeemed from the curse because that of first importance, Christ died for your sins. Now, Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. This was a messed up church. It is so interesting when you read this, these texts. He's writing to a, a church that is very confused on so many doctrinal issues, and they are, there's so much sin that is in that church, and Paul writes largely to correct them. But here, he brings them back to this truth that is of first importance. So hear this truth that is of first importance. As a part of a tag to that first point, he says it was according to the Scriptures. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This isn't a minor detail. This is grounding Paul's message in prophetic history. That what was happening with Jesus there on that cross, that Good Friday, before the resurrection, was foretold. It was according to the scriptures. And it grounds our faith there too. If you have faith in Christ, be encouraged that your faith is grounded in prophetic history. It's grounded in scripture. What God has said Jesus was not an afterthought. Jesus, the Son of God, taking upon flesh, was a plan. It was a plan. Here's a couple examples. 600 years before Christ walked the earth, we see these words penned in Psalm chapter 22, verse 16 to 18. Now listen to the description of the psalmist David. 600 years before Christ. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. And if you're not familiar with the Gospels and what happened to the life of Jesus on the way to the cross, this is exactly what happened. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that foretells the cross of Christ hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Here it is in the pages of the psalm, Psalm 22, a very real psalm written by a real figure in history. 
And if that doesn't catch your attention, verse 1 of that same chapter, these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that Jesus utters from the cross, not to just flippantly fulfill Scripture, no, but because he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And Christ was not unaware, but this was predicted 600 years prior. 700 years before that, we read from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 5. Listen to these stark words. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are, are healed. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Thousands of years before that, I could not possibly date when this was, but Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And for those who aren't familiar with that, that is the very first prophecy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ, a seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of a virgin, a virgin birth. And that man, that seed would crush the head of the serpent and in the process bruise his heel. Folks, this is of first importance that we know this today, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And I hope you know this. Paul moves on. He says he was buried. He was buried. Not an insignificant detail to say that he was buried after he died, not in the least, because you don't bury living people. Paul is very clear to say he was buried. Why? Because he was dead. And you may not follow this train of thought, but there are many and some and all through the centuries that have contested that Jesus was not actually dead, so he did not actually rise. But he was buried and he was dead. The gospel writers make it clear that Christ was confirmed dead on the cross. I just want to prove it to you in case you've never seen it or heard it. John chapter 19, an eyewitness, the apostle John, who witnessed the very crucifixion of Jesus, says this in chapter 19, verse 31. The soldiers therefore came, and they broke the legs of the first man who was crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. This is the gospel account, the eyewitness of John the apostle. Jesus was crucified. He died And these guys were professional killers. Can I just remind you of that? There's no way that they would have mistaken a dead man for a living man. He was dead. It wasn't customary to bury victims of crucifixion in a tomb. Rather, what they often did was they would leave them on the crosses to decay and be eaten by scavengers. So it is interesting that Jesus was given an honorable burial, isn't it? That was also predicted in Scripture, that he would be given an honorable burial. All four Gospels tell us that Jesus was removed from the cross, prepared for burial, and then placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a specific name that each Gospel writer mentions, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was part of the Jewish government. Joseph was high up in this rank, likely alongside Nicodemus that we remember from John chapter 3. Now, had the gospel writers wanted to make up a story about the burial and then stage a resurrection, they would not have included the name of a Pharisee who was alive at the time, whose story could be verified or denied, knowing the disdain that the Jews had for all the apostles and for Jesus Christ. 
These details are important. Joseph of Arimathea was changed by Jesus Christ and volunteered his unused tomb for Christ and asked Pilate for permission, can I take him down from the cross and can we bury him in this tomb? Nicodemus, or excuse me, Joseph of Arimathea was a changed man. He was changed by the testimony of Christ's life and death and therefore he urges Pilate for an honorable burial. And this also was fulfilled, Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Who was that rich man? Well, one of the gospel writers goes out of his way to say a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea volunteered his tomb. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and the body of Christ was actually buried and laid in a tomb. Why? Because it would be later on the third day that out of that tomb Christ would rise and God would vindicate his son through redeeming his people through that death and resurrection. This was all part of the plan. It was necessary that Christ be buried, that Christ be in the tomb. Thirdly, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's worth noting that Paul doesn't place this part of his gospel proclamation on a different category of history than the first two. As just as plainly as he was crucified, as just as plainly as he was buried, Paul says he raised. He lived, he died, and he raised. All three are put forth as real Events. Maybe you've been somebody who has searched this out as a skeptic. Maybe you've wondered, did Christ actually die? What evidence is there necessary to prove his resurrection? You want to know what you need to prove that he rose out of the grave? You need to know that he died, and you need to know that he appeared afterwards. That's it. Any crime or any scene that you never witnessed, and you don't know, how do you know anything happens? How do you know what happens? It's verified by witnesses. It's verified by other people who saw it, and you see the results on the other side. And we've established from Scripture that the actual body of Jesus was taken from the cross on that Friday, prepared for burial, and placed in a tomb. And this is some of the stuff that we talked about on Good Friday at our service. You know, it didn't seem to make much difference that Christ had prepared his disciples for this because even Jesus, who spoke the word, the truth to his disciples, had told them that this day would come. Most of them still did not believe at this time. The Bible tells us most of his followers did not believe him till after the resurrection. They didn't consider Psalm 1610 a, mess- a messianic psalm that all of them would have known that says this, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The Holy One, the Son of God, the Messiah would not have a corrupted body. He wouldn't go into decay But they didn't believe this yet because they prepared his body, fully expecting those burial perfumes to stop the stench of his decay. Didn't they? They didn't see this. They didn't hold on to this psalm that spoke that this would not happen to the Son of God, the Messiah. He would not see corruption. They did not remember his very own words in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Jesus spoke those very words to his disciples. Destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up again. Now because this is Resurrection Sunday, I do think we need to get our eyes on that story. And I've chosen to look at 
John's account. So if you turn to John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, we'll read that account. I want to read it nice and slow. I want you guys to do the, what, what you can to just put yourself there in that place on that day, on that Sunday morning. Imagine the silence of the Saturday after that Good Friday and you witnessed the violence and all that was done to the Savior. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they are going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following, following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying there with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. That's one account. There's three other accounts that the writers speak of the resurrection. I would encourage you to look at all of those today and let it just give you a full rounded picture of all that happened on that day. But a few things that should be mentioned for the sake of the skeptic that might be in the room. You've not given your life to Christ. You're not trusting Christ. You don't believe in the risen Savior. You're skeptical and that was such, of, such were some of us. But Christ saves. Christ redeems. He is so kind and so patient. And he does answer questions. But if the early Christians wanted to make up a story about Jesus' bodily resurrection and plant a fake eyewitness, a first century man would not make a woman the key witness. This is an important detail. A first century man would not make Mary Magdalene the key witness and then highlight her as a, a pinnacle of that story. On that first day, the first one to see Jesus was Mary Magdalene. Not for lack of respect on their part, but because the culture did not consider women a valid source of testimony and their story would be ultimately thrown out. But John and the other gospel writers, they did choose to name Mary as that first eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because it was true. Because <laughs> it was true. She did witness it. They weren't corroborating a story or making anything up. She was, in fact, the first person down there, and she saw and she witnessed it. How awesome is that, that a woman who was once verifiably possessed by seven demons has been radically changed by the life of Jesus and is now the first to witness his resurrection and preach the good news to others. Is that not remarkable? This woman and the change of her life from demon-possessed, God-hater to saved, first witness to the resurrection and a proclaimer of the gospel. Glory to God for his tender mercies for sinners like us. And how he changes people's lives, like our lives. How he changes sinful people, distraught people, corrupted people, possessed people, changes them, gives them new life, and gives us all that ministry of reconciliation to take the gospel and to others and say, he is risen. 
Christ is risen indeed. He's changed my life. And then what we have included in the, in the, the account from Matthew is there was this invented story by the Jewish leaders to attempt to cover up the resurrection. If you remember, Matthew 28, verse 12 it says, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Let, tell people, here's the lie, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he was asleep, while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep, him, keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Made up story. They were attempting to snuff out the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Which, by the way, their story is a story with so many holes in it, it's ridiculous. And it only takes a, a slight look in that direction with some facts to, to verify that ourselves. The Roman guards at the entrance, for one, would not have allowed that. The heavy stone over the tomb that when some of the disciples went down there, they were asking them this question, who's going to help us remove the stone? The stone was too big for just the disciples to move. The Roman seal that was upon the stone. The gospel writers tell us that there was a seal of Rome put on the stone that if it's broken, that's bad news for the soldiers. You don't break a Roman seal. You have the folded clothes in the tomb, which is an interesting point. Isn't that interesting? What was that about? All of that proves that this was no stolen body, but a miraculous risen Christ who did just as he said he would do. And he rose. I love to picture Jesus just like folding his clothes. <laughs> there you go. I told you I would do this. <laughs> but a stolen body or any other kind of corrupted scene, it, it wouldn't have been folded clothes. It would have been a panic. It would have been an incredible mess to try to get through those, those Roman soldiers, break the seal, move the stone, remove Jesus, and do whatever they would do. But remember, it was a lie. They made it up, and the scriptures tell us they made up the lie to cover the truth. The truth is what? Jesus was risen, and they knew it. Even the unbelievers, even the skeptics, even the Pharisees, they knew he was risen. So it's not a matter of just knowledge. It's a matter of faith, isn't it? They didn't trust the risen Christ. They hated the risen Christ. Maybe you do know Christ was risen, and maybe you think, I, I don't care. Well, you will die in your sins. The risen Christ takes away the sin of the world. Those who trust him, those who believe in him, put their faith in him. Paul goes on with the creed that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. And look at verse 6. Then he appeared to, this is back in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So not only was he seen by Mary, as recorded in the Gospels, and the apostles, but by more than 500 people at one time, possibly on that Galilee mountainside where Jesus told his disciples to meet him and gather, and there he is on the mountainside. Potentially there was a crowd there that all witnessed him and saw him, but Paul says 500 eyewitnesses to that, all of them, or most of which, were able to be interviewed if desired. Paul included that detail. If you want to go check, they're mostly still alive. Isn't that cool? 
eyewitnesses, verifiable. They could go interview them and see, did you see Jesus? This was around 60, 65 AD that Paul writes this. Many of them would have been alive. He also appeared to the skeptical brother of Jesus. That's who this James is. John chapter 7 verse 5 says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. He appeared to the brothers who did not believe in him. And who later, what did they do? They believed. Why? Because he appeared to James, risen. Hey, James, you've lived with me my whole life. (laughs) I've told you this day was coming, and you didn't believe. James witnessed his death. He knew he was buried, and he appeared to his brother. He appeared to him in bodily form. James would go on to be a prominent figure in the church of Jerusalem. Tradition tells us that he would have been that lead shepherd there in the early Jerusalem church. Then finally, he appears to Paul himself, who meets Jesus as a persecutor of the church. He even appeared to his enemy. He appeared to his enemy. Here I am. I'm the one that you persecuted. I'm the one that you're persecuting. And he meets him on the road, and by the grace of God, he's called to be an apostle and a messenger of the gospel that he persecuted. And he takes that message and this creed, and he goes and he begins to spread it around the world. Jesus, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he was risen. I've seen him. He's alive. So brothers and sisters and guests and skeptics, the risen Christ, he does change lives. He changes lives. We've witnessed it here this morning. Maybe you're even witnessing the Spirit of God tugging at your heart to change your life. He wants to change your life. He can change your life, and he will change your life. The Bible says we must trust Christ. Repent and turn from sin to trust in the risen Savior. But I tell you, because you're here this morning and because we at New City believe in a sovereign God who is providential with every bit of timing, you are here because he wants to change your life. Because he wants you confronted with the risen Christ, the reality of Jesus who was buried and was seen after his burial. Risen, alive, and well in a new body, a resurrected body. Many of these will go on to live and die not for a cause. Please understand, they didn't die for a cause. If you say, hey, they died for a cause, well, people die for causes today, don't they? Causes that aren't true. You can verify that people die for causes that aren't worth dying for. They didn't die for a cause. They died for a fact. They died for the truth, not something that they thought, this would be a good cause. Let's make a new religion. They died for a verifiable truth that they would go to their graves and would never deny, and they had every opportunity to. They had every opportunity to say, no, I don't, no, he wasn't risen. No, he wasn't, unless he was. Because if you see the risen Christ, you don't deny it. You know it. It's true. They went to their grave for a set of facts and truth. Consider how easy it would be to dismiss a lie for the sake of your life. But you, or can you dismiss a man who was dead and appeared alive? You cannot. So what should this mean for us today? 
I want to call each and every one of you, all of you, to tie yourself to the testimony of this apostle, the apostle Paul, who is delivering what he has received, this incredible creed, this set of truths that has been transferred down to this very day and now being delivered to you, to your ears, to tie your life to that testimony, that fact, not the lies that are in the world, not the false gospels and the false hopes that there are, but tie your life to this testimony, this creed, this truth, and make it a creed of your life and pass it on. This is the truth. Tie your life to that testimony and to the eyewitnesses of Christ and to this ancient creed that was handed down. He died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised to new life, church. He was raised to new life. This is what we're celebrating. That is the truth. And he was witnessed alive before ascending in victory over all things to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. Amen. Root yourself in that historical, verifiable fact, but don't just believe the knowledge of it. Trust your life with it. Put your faith in it, in Christ, in the truth. Root yourself there. Because if that is true, and it is true, then you and I have real hope. We have real hope, don't we? Think about all the things that people put their hope in, that you have clinged to, that you are hoping in perhaps even now, or that you have hoped in in the past. And tell me, does it compare to the hope of a risen Christ, of a risen Savior, one who promises to also bring us with him into new life and into eternity? I will bring you there, he says. Where I'm going, you cannot go now, but I will one day, I will raise you up. He says, I will raise you up. You also will be raised. These earthly decaying bodies that will decay we. Listen, that promise doesn't go to us. We will decay. It's a process even going now. Don't describe it what it looks like in your life. That's too much information. But it'll eventually happen to us all. We will decay. And even our bodies will be given new life. Those who trust in Christ. Those who believe in the risen Savior. Amen to that. Real hope for all eternity. But Paul goes on to say in verse 14, and you can look further down in that text, so this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The forgiveness of sins and a purpose, a life with purpose is directly tied to a life that is committed to the risen Savior. We are living purposeless lives if there is no resurrection. But Paul verifies there was a resurrection. You don't have to live without purpose. And you don't have to live a life in vain. And your preaching doesn't have to be in vain. Your life doesn't have to be in vain. You can tie yourself to this testimony. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most pitied. But we do have hope, not only in this life, but in the life that is to come. And the hope is in Christ alone. Only in Christ. Otherwise, what a pity. Verse 20, 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. That man he's referring to is Adam. Through Adam, you and I inherit sinful nature, and we are dead in our sins. But it is through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the one who did everything that Adam could not do, the one who lived perfectly and fulfilled the law and did not rebel against the Father. He did that all on your behalf and my behalf so that we too can follow in his footsteps. As I invite the band to come back up, I want to just encourage you to keep listening. Band can go ahead and come back up. But I don't want you to be deceived by the world into thinking that this is all that there is. It's very easy to, in our lives, think that this is all that there is and be overwhelmed with an emotion of wasted time and what am I here for? Even Christians, listen, Christians in the room, committed followers of Jesus, even Christians forget that one of the great consequences of the resurrection is not only that Jesus conquered sin, Satan and death, but that there is coming a day when the bodies of those who have trusted in Christ will really and actually physically raise from corruptible earthly material and put on incorruptible life at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at the resurrection of the dead. That is a reality. Don't forget that. That is a reality. I mean, real physical death will take place and we will put on immortality those who trust in Jesus. And if you say, that doesn't matter, because I'm here to live this. Well, you live in these physical bodies, and you trust in these physical bodies. Guess what? It cannot sustain you. It is for those who trust in Christ. You will be really, actually, physically raised from corruptible earthly material and put on incorruptible at the resurrection. But this is not for the wicked This is not for those who hate God. This is not for those who ignore God, that pretend God doesn't exist, that preaches against God. This is not for the rebellious. This is not for the sin-loving people. You have no hope in resurrection if you love your sin more than you love Christ. But it's only for those who come to trust in the work of the cross and you have heard about the work of the cross. I beg you, I beg you, if you've not trusted in the work of the cross, don't be here thinking this is a cute Sunday Easter service. I come once a year to Easter. It's so cute. I'm never going to go to church again, but wow, this was fun. Thanks for the seed bombs out there. By the way, grab a seed bomb on the way out because we don't want any extra. (laughs) They're on your left when you walk through the door. Anyway. But that's not what this is about. You will be deceived. And if that's what you're thinking, I can just come here and I'll never come to church again. I don't need God's people. I don't need Christ. I don't need his word. You have heard the only message that can save sinners from hell. It would be wrong of me to not include that that is the reality of this situation. It is so grave. It is why this is of first importance because hell is a reality just as much as the resurrection and the grave of Christ was a reality. Hell is a reality. Separation from God forever is a reality for those who do not today perhaps say, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to follow him. It was not just cute what Angel did here. That was a changed life. Amen. So I beg you, if that's you, if you need that today, then cling to Christ by faith. Trust him. Put your hope in him. 
I can't save you. Nobody here can save you. Only Jesus. He died for sin and he rose from the dead. And those who believe that will be able to sing this song. Look at these words on the screen. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a song that will be sung by the redeemed. By those who raise incorruptible one day future, you will be given new bodies, you will be raised, raised to be with Christ forever and ever and ever, and you will sing this song, death had no hold on me because it had no hold on Christ. He was risen, I will rise. And you can stake your life on it, you can go to the grave with that. I don't care who makes fun of you or who, it doesn't matter what the, how grim the situation is around you. If you were to today turn your, turn your life to Christ and follow him, how many people would hate you and abandon you? You want to know what's worth it? That Christ loves you. That Christ died for you, the God of heaven and earth, that he wants you. Do you have such victory? Do you have that victory? Many of you do, and I rejoice, New City Church. We rejoice in the truth of this fact every week, week in and week out. This is why we exist. So this message is primarily, this invitation is for you to consider who have not trusted in Christ, or you're distant from the body, or you're living in sin. Trust in Christ. Do you have that victory? Place your faith in the work of Christ. Repent of all of your sin and come and follow. And then tell everyone just as Mary Magdalene did. All the apostles tell everyone that you know that Christ is risen. Amen? Amen. 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 Father, we thank you for delivering to us a message that is of first importance. Thank you for the apostle Paul and for his changed life, that he met you, Lord Jesus, on that road to Damascus. And you turned a, rub, a rebellious heart, a hater of God, into a lover of Christ the King. A man that would go on to say, I count all else as rubbish. And I look to Christ alone. For the sake of knowing Christ the King, may there be many in this room that today that say everything else is a waste of time in comparison to staking my life on the, the risen Jesus, the risen Lord, who was crucified for our sins, who was buried and who raised on the third day according to Scripture and was seen by Cephas and the apostles and James and 500 eyewitnesses, and he is alive. I pray, God, that you would change and transform hearts. God, let this be a crescendo in people's lives, not an emotional manipulation. Oh, God, let it not be that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would change lives. And that forever you would be glorified by these mouths, by these lips. May there be repentance, and confession, and turning from sin. God, redeem lives. And we rejoice in the risen Jesus today. We love you and we thank you. And it's in the name of Christ that we all pray and we rejoice. Amen. 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 Let's all stand, church. Thanks for tuning in to this week.
week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.